0: $500 million. This story, which ends in New York, begins in the department of the Gironde at the town of Montségur, 75 kilometers from Bordeaux, in the little vineyard of Monsieur Émile Lapierre, landowner. In 1901, Lapierre was a happy and contented man, making a good living out of his modest farm. Today he is... Well, if you understand the language of the Girande, he will tell you with a shrug of his broad shoulders that he might have been a Monte Cristo, had not Le Bon Dieu willed it otherwise. For did he not almost have five hundred million dollars, two and a half milliards of francs in his very hands? Eh? But he did. Does Monsieur have doubts? Nevertheless, it is all true. C'est trop vrai. Is Monsieur tired? And would he care to hear the story? There is a comfortable chair sous le grand arbre in front of the veranda, and madame will give monsieur a glass of wine from the presses across the road. Yes, it is good wine, but there is little profit in it, when one thinks in milliards. The landowner lights his pipe and seats himself cross-legged against the trunk of the big chestnut. Back of the house, the vineyard slopes away toward the distant woods in straight, green, trellised alleys. A dim haze hangs over the landscape, sleeping so quietly in the midsummer afternoon. Down the road comes, heavily, creaking and swaying, a wain loaded with a huge tower of empty casks and drawn by two oxen, their heads swinging to the dust. Yes, it is hard to comprend 2,500 million francs. It was this way. Madame Lapierre was a Tessier of Bordeaux, an ancient bourgeois family, and very proud indeed of being bourgeois. You can see her passing and repassing the window, if you watch carefully the kitchen, where she is superintending dinner. The Tessiers have always lived in Bordeaux, and they are connected by marriage with everybody, from the blacksmith up to the mayor's notary. Once a Tessier was mayor himself. Years and years ago, Madame's great-uncle Jean had emigrated to America, and from time to time vague rumors of the wealth he had achieved in the new country reached the ears of his relatives— but no direct word ever came. Then, one hot day, like this, appeared Monsieur le General. He came walking down the road, in the dust from the gare, in his tall silk hat and frock coat and gold-headed cane, and stopped before the house to ask if one of the descendants of a certain Jean Tessier did not live hereabouts. He was fat and red-faced, and he perspired, but Dieu, he was distingué, and he had an order in his buttonhole. Madame Lapierre, who came out to answer his question, knew at once that he was an aristocrat. Ah, was she herself the grand-niece of Jean Tessier? Then, heaven be thanked, the general's toilsome journey was ended. He had much to tell them, when he should be rested. He removed the silk hat and mopped his shining forehead. He must introduce himself, that he might have credit with Madame, else she might hardly listen to his story." for there had never been a tale like it since before the world was. Let him present himself, Monsieur le General Pedro Suarez de Moreno, Count de Tonoco, and Marquis de la Dessa. Although one was fatigued, it refreshed one to be the bearer of good news, and such was his mission. Let Madame prepare herself to hear. Yes, it would be proper for her to call Monsieur her husband, that he might participate. Over a draft of this same vintage, Monsieur le Général imparted to them the secret. Lapierre laughs and shrugs his shoulders as he recalls the scene, the apoplectic general, with the glass of wine in one hand, waving the other grandiloquently as he described the wealth about to descend upon them. Yes, the general must begin at the beginning, for it was a long story. First, as to himself and how he came to know of the affair. It had been on his return from the Philippines, after the surrender of Manila, where he had been in command of the armies of spain that he had paused for repose in new york and had first learned of the tessier inheritance the precise manner of his discovery was left somewhat indefinite but the lapierres were not particular so many distinguished persons had played a part in the drama that the recital left but a vague impression as to individuals a certain madame lucia widow of one rockefeller whom he had accidentally met, had apparently been the instrument of providence in disclosing the history of Jean Tessier to the general. She herself had been wronged by the villains and knew all the secrets of the conspirators, but she had waited for a suitable opportunity to speak. Jean Tessier had died possessed of properties which today, seventy years after, were worth in the neighborhood of five hundred million dollars the general paused for the effect, solemnly nodding his head at his astounded auditors in affirmance. Yes, it was even so. Five hundred million dollars. No more and no less. Then he once more took up the thread of his narrative. Tessier's lands, originally farms, were today occupied by huge magasins, government buildings, palaces, and hotels. He had been a frugal, hard-working, far-seeing man of affairs whose money had doubled itself year by year. Then had appeared one Emmerich Lespinasse, a Frenchman also from Bordeaux, who had plotted to rob him of his estate and the better to accomplish his purpose had entered the millionaire's employ. When Tessier died in 1884, Lespinasse had seized his papers and the property destroyed his will, dispersed the clerks, secretaries, notaries, and accountants of the deceased, and quietly got rid of such persons as stood actively in his way. The great wealth thus acquired had enabled him to defy those who knew that he was not entitled to the fortune, and that the real heirs were in faraway France. He had prospered like the Baytree. His daughter, Marie Louise, had married a distinguished English nobleman, and his sons were now the richest men in America, Yet they lived with the sword of Damocles over their heads, suspended by a single thread, and the general had the knife wherewith to cut it. Lespinasse, among other things, had caused the murder of the husband of Madame Lucia, and she was in possession of conclusive proofs which, at the proper moment, could be produced, to convict him of his many crimes, or at least to oust his sons and daughter from the stolen inheritance." It was a weird, bizarre nightmare, no more astonishing than the novels the LaPierre's had read. America, they understood, was a land where the rivers were full of gold, a country of bronzed and handsome savages, of birds of paradise and ruined Aztec temples, of vast tobacco fields and plantations of thousands of acres of cotton cultivated by naked slaves, where one lay in a hammock fanned by a petite negre and languidly sipped Eau Sucre, the general had made it all seem very, very real. At the weak spots, he had gesticulated convincingly and digressed upon his health. Then, while the narrative was fresh, and he might have had to answer questions about it, had he given his listeners opportunity to ask them, he had hastily told of a visit to Tunis. There he had by chance encountered Marie-Louise, the daughter of L'Espinasse, living with her noble husband in a handsome Oriental palace, had been invited to dine with them, and had afterwards seized the occasion, while walking in the garden with the lady, to disclose the fact that he knew all, and had it in his power to ruin them as impostors. Marie-Louise had been frightfully angry, but afterward her better nature had suggested the return of the inheritance, or at least a hundred millions or so, to the rightful heirs. The general had left the palace, believing all would be well, and had retired to Paris to await letters and further developments. But these had never come, and he had discovered that he had been deceived. It had been merely a ruse on the part of the woman and her husband to gain time, and now every step that he took was dogged by spies in the pay of the Lespinasses, who followed him everywhere. But the right would triumph. He had sworn to run the conspiracy to earth. Many hours were consumed in the telling of the story. The Lapierres were enchanted. More than that, they were convinced, persuaded, that they were heirs to the richest inheritance in the world, which comprised most of the great American city of New York. Persons who were going to participate in 2,500 millions of francs could afford to be hospitable. Monsieur le General stayed to dinner. A list of the heirs living in or near Bordeaux was made out, with the share of each in the inheritance carefully computed. Madame Lapierre's was only 50 million dollars. But still, that was almost enough to buy at Bordeaux, and they could purchase Monsaguer as a country place. The general spoke of a stable of automobiles by means of which the journey from Bordeaux to the farm could be accomplished in the space of an hour. That night, the good man and his wife scarcely closed their eyes, and the next day, accompanied by the general, they visited Bordeaux and the neighboring towns and broke the news gently to the other heirs. There was Monsieur Petit, the veterinary at Mourmand, Tessier the blacksmith in Bordeaux, M. Peleg and his wife, M. Rosier, M. Casanava and his son, and others. One branch of the family lived in Brazil, the Jubin Frères and one Tessier of saint Bazelle. These last had to be reached by post, a most annoyingly slow means of communication. Mais que voulez-vous? Those were busy days in and around Bordeaux, and the general was the center of attraction. What a splendid figure he cut in his tall silk hat and gold-headed cane. But they were all very careful to let no inkling of their good fortune leak out, for it might spoil everything, give some opportunity to the spies of the impostor Lespinasse to fabricate new chains of title, or to prepare for defense of the fortune. The little blacksmith, being addicted to white wine, was the only one who did not keep his head, but even he managed to hold his mouth sufficiently shut. A family council was held. Monsieur le General was given full power of attorney to act for all the heirs, and each having contributed an insignificant sum toward his necessary expenses, they waved him a tremulous goodbye as he stood on the upper deck of the steamer, his silk hat in one hand and his gold-headed cane in the other. He will get it, if anyone can, cried the blacksmith enthusiastically. It is as good as ours already, echoed Rosier. My friends, Madame Lapierre assured them, "'A general of the armies of Spain and a chevalier of the order of Jiménez "'would die rather than fail on his mission. "'Besides,' she added, her French blood asserting itself, "'he is to get nineteen percent of the inheritance.' "'As long as the steamer remained in sight, the general waved encouragingly, "'his hat raised toward heaven. "'Mais,' says Lapierre, with another shrug, as he lights his pipe, "'even you would have believed him. Vraiment, he would have deceived the devil himself.' Up the road, the wain comes creaking back again. A crow flaps across the vineyard, laughing scornfully at good Monsieur Lapierre, and you yourself wonder if such a thing could have been possible. On a rainy afternoon, in March 1905, there entered the writer's office in the Criminal Courts Building, New York City, a ruddy, stoutly built man, dressed in homespun garments, accompanied by an attractive and vivacious little woman, who, while unable to speak a single word of English, had no difficulty in making it obvious that she had a story to tell of the most vital importance. An interpreter was soon found, and the names of the visitors disclosed. The lady, who did the talking for both of them, introduced herself as Madame Valois Redon of Bordeaux and her companion as Monsieur Émile Lapierre, landowner of Montségur. They had come, she explained, from France to take possession of the inheritance Tessier. She was a personal friend of Madame Lapierre, and as the Tessiers had exhausted all their money in paying the expenses connected with securing the fortune, she, being a well-to-do gentlewoman, had come to their assistance, and for the last few months had been financing the enterprise on a 15% basis. If Madame Lapierre was to receive $10 million, then, to be sure, Madame Redon would have $1,500,000. But, of course, it was not for the money, but on account of friendship, that she was aiding them. I would understand that three years had elapsed since a certain distinguished General Pedro Suarez de Moreno had disclosed to the Lapierres the fact that Madame was the heiress to the greatest estate in America. Monsieur Lapierre solemnly nodded confirmation as the lady proceeded. It was the one subject talked about in the Gironde and Bordeaux, that is, among those who had been fortunate enough to learn anything about it, and for three years the Tessiers, their wives, their sons' wives, and their connections, had been waiting to receive the glad tidings that the conspirators had been put to rout and the rightful heirs reinstated. It was some time before the good lady succeeded in convincing her auditor that such a ridiculous fraud as she described had actually been perpetrated, but there was Monsieur Lapierre, and there was Madame Valérie Redon, sitting in the office as living witnesses to the fact. What wonderful person could this General Moreno be, who could hypnotize a hard-headed, thrifty farmer from the Gironde and a clever little Frenchwoman from Bordeaux, into believing that five hundred million dollars was waiting for them on the other side of the Atlantic? I expressed my surprise. Madame Redon shrugged her sloping shoulders— Well, perhaps it was hard for Monsieur to believe, but then there were the proofs, the documents, the dossier, and most of all, there was the general himself. Oh, if Monsieur could see the general in his tall silk hat and gold-headed cane. I asked for the documents. Madame Redon opened her bag and produced a package of nearly 100 letters written in a fine Spanish hand. Oh, he had been a wonderful writer, this gorgeous Count de Tonoco and Marquis de la Dessa. She had met him herself when he had been in Bordeaux. Madame Lapierre had introduced him to her, and she had heard him talk, how beautifully he talked. The stories of his experiences as general of the armies of Spain under Don Carlos and as brigadier general in the Philippines were as fascinating as a romance, but it was his letters which had really led her to take a personal interest in the undertaking." With a sigh, Madame Valouis untied the little blue ribbon which bound up the pitiful little history. If Monsieur would be good enough to grant the time, she would begin at the beginning. Here was his first letter, written after the General's return to America. June twenty-fifth, 02 My dear Monsieur Lapierre, We have had a terrible voyage. A horrible storm broke loose in mid-ocean, endangering all our lives. The waves like mountains threatened every instant to swallow us all. The spectacle was terrifying. I fell from the top of the stairs, way down into the hull, sick, hurting my right leg in the center of the tibia bone. The ship's doctor, who was nothing but a stupid fool, left me helpless almost the entire day. If ever I should have dreamt what would occur to me on this trip, not for all the gold in the world would I have embarked. But, now that I am here, I shall not retreat before any obstacle, in order to arrive at the fulfillment of my enterprise." and no matter at what cost, even at that of my life. It is necessary that I succeed. My pride demands it. Those who are in the right shall triumph, that is sure. In the meantime, will you kindly give my regards to Madame and your son, and all your relatives, not forgetting your good old servant. Squeezing your hand cordially, I bid you adieu, your devoted Pedro S. de Moreno. Can you not see the waves and observe him falling down the hall, says Madame Redon? Mais voici une autre. July 11th, 1902. Monsieur Jean Lapierre. My dear Monsieur Lapierre, as soon as I could walk a little, I began my research for the impostors of the inheritance tessier. Without a doubt, some person who is interested in the case has already advised them of my arrival in New York and to take the necessary precautions to lead me astray in my researches. Already I have discovered almost everything. I know even the house in which resided the deceased before his death. It is a house of 25 stories high, which resembles the Church of saint Magdalene in Paris. Today it is the biggest bank in New York. I have visited it from top to bottom, ascending and descending in steel elevators. This is a marvelous palace. It is worth more than $5 million. The house itself has the numbers 100, 102, 104, 106, 108, 110, 112, 114, 116, and 118. In other words, it covers the ground of ten other houses made into one. I have also visited six houses belonging to him, which are worth millions, and are located around Central Park. As soon as the brothers Lespinasse knew that I had arrived in New York, they immediately took their departure, one for Paris to find his father, Emmerich Lespinasse, the other to the city of Tuxpan in Mexico, to visit the properties stolen from the heirs. I have come to an understanding with the Reverend Father Van Rensselaer, Father Superior of the Jesuits, and have offered him two millions for his poor, in recompense for his aid to recover and to enter into possession of the inheritance. He takes great pains and is my veritable guide and confidant. I have visited Central Park, also a property of the deceased. This property alone is worth more than twenty million dollars. I have great confidence in my success, and I am almost sure to reach the goal, if you are the heirs, for here there is a mix-up by all the devils. The wound of my leg has much improved, the consequences which I feared have disappeared, and I expect soon my complete convalescence. But the devil has bestowed upon me a toothache which makes me almost crazy with pain. I shall leave nevertheless to begin my campaign." Will you be kind enough to give my regards to your wife and son and to our old friend, etc., etc., Pedro S. de Moreno? May the devil bestow upon him five hundred million toothaches, exclaims Lapierre, for the first time showing any sign of animation. The other letters were read in their order, interspersed with Madame Redon's explanations of their effect upon the heirs in France. His description of the elevators of steel and of the house that covered an entire block had caused a veritable sensation. Alas, those wonders are still wonders to them, and they still, I fancy, more than half believe in them. The letters are lying before me now, astonishing emanations, totally ridiculous to a prosaic American, but calculated to convince and stimulate the imagination of a petit bourgeois. The general, in glowing terms, paints his efforts to run down the Lespenaz conspirators. Although suffering horribly from his fractured tibia when he fell into the hole, and from other dire ills, he has not taken the slightest rest. He has been everywhere, New Orleans, Florida, to the city of Coney Island, to corner the villains who flee in all directions. The daughter, Marie Louise, through whom the general expects to secure a compromise, has left for New Orleans. Wonderful coincidence, he writes. They were all living quietly, and I believe had no intention whatever to travel." and two days after my arrival in New York, they all disappeared. The most suspicious of it all is that the banker, his wife and children, had left for Coney Island for the summer and to spend their holidays, and certainly they disappeared without saying goodbye to their intimate friends. I have the whole history of Tessier's life and how he made his fortune. There is a family for the use of whom we must give at least a million, for the fortune of Tessier was not his alone. He had a companion who shared his troubles and his work, According to the will, they were to inherit one from the other. The companion died, and Tessier inherited everything. I do not see the necessity of your trip to New York. That might make noise, and perhaps delay my negotiations. Then follows the list of properties embraced in the inheritance. Property and personal estate of the heirs. 1. The land of Central Park ceded to the city of New York, of the value of $5 million. 2. He had, at the National Bank, United States Bank, deposited in gold 20 to $30 million. He never withdrew anything. On the contrary, he always deposited his income there, $25 million. Three, The Big House on Broadway, numbers 100 to 118, of 25 stories, today the largest bank in New York, $5 million. Four, The House on Fifth Avenue, number 765, facing Central Park. Today, one of the first hotels of New York, Hotel Savoy, $8 million. Five. House on Fifth Avenue, number 767, facing Central Park. Today, the biggest and most handsomest of American hotels, where the greatest people and millionaires stop. Hotel Netherland, $20 million. Six. Two coal mines at Fokustung in Texas, $9 million. Seven. A petroleum mine in Pennsylvania, Mexican Frontier, $6 million. Eight, shares of silver mine at Tuxpan, Mexico, $10 million. Nine, the house at Tuxpan and its grounds, Mexico, $15,000. Ten, the pleasure home and grounds in Florida, New Orleans, in the city of Coney Island, $500,000. Eleven, the house, which covers all the Esquire Plaza, no number because it is all alone. It is an immense palace with a park and gardens and waters forming cascades and labyrinths facing Central Park, $12 million. Twelve, the block of houses on 5th and 6th Avenues facing on this same Central Park, which, as all these grounds belonged to him, he had put up. They are a hundred houses, that is called here a block, $30 million. Thirteen, he is the owner of two railroads and owns shares of others in Pennsylvania and Canada. 40 million dollars. 14. A line of steam and sailboats, Atlantic, the Pennsylvania and the Tessier and other names, 100 million dollars. 15. A dock and a key of 800 meters on the Brooklyn River for his ships, 130 million dollars. 16. Several values and debts owed him, which at his debt had not been collected, 40,000 dollars. Total $390,555,000, which is in francs 1,952,775,000 francs, plus 5%, 976,388 francs. Total in francs 1,953,751,388. Do you blame us? asks Madame Valouis, as I listen as politely as possible to this Arabian knight's dream of riches. The letters continue. The general is surrounded by enemies, of which the worst are French, and he is forced continually to change his residence in order to escape their machinations. But all this takes money. How can he go to Tuxpan or to the city of Coney Island? You cannot know nor imagine the expense which I have had to discover that which I have discovered. I cannot live here like a miser, for the part I represent demands much of me. Every moment I change my residence, and that costs money. He adds a little touch of detail. I must always be dressed properly, and laundry is very dear here. A shirt costs twenty-five cents to wash, and there are other necessary expenses. You have forgotten to tell me if you have received the album of views of New York in which I have indicated the properties of the deceased. I squeeze your hand.' Yes, and our purses, too, adds Madame Valois. Would Monsieur care to see the album of the Tessier properties? Yes. Monsieur Lapierre, kindly show the gentleman. Lapierre unbuttons his homespun coat and produces a cheap paper-covered blank book in which are pasted small photographs and woodcuts of various well-known New York buildings. It is hard not to smile. Monsieur will see, continues Madame Valouis, that the dream had something substantial about it. When we saw these pictures in Bordeaux, we were on the point of giving up in despair, but the pictures convinced us that it was all true. Moreover, just at that time, the general intimated that unless he had more money, he might yield to the efforts of the Lespinasse family to buy him off. Madame Valouis points vindictively to a certain paragraph in one of the letters. Of course, they are convinced that I am not for sale, not for anything. To my regret, My very great regret, I shall be forced to capitulate if you do not come to my aid and that quickly, for I repeat to you that my funds are all gone. And here is his bill, continues Madame Valois, producing a folded document composed of countless sheets of very thin paper, bound together at the edges by strips of heavier material. This, when unfolded, stretches entirely across the room and is seen to be composed of hundreds of typewritten items— of which the following may serve as illustrations. Expenses in New York. July 12th, train to New Orleans, $25.50. July 16th, train to Florida, $2.50. July 16th, dinner on train, $2.00. July 17th, hotel in Florida, $2.00. July 18th, trip to Coney Island, $0.50. July 19th, return to Florida, $0.50. Cents. July 21st, return from Florida to New Orleans, $2.50. July 21st, laundry, fifteen. December 3rd, return to New York, $6.50. December 24th, train to Veracruz, $57.50. January 4th, trip to Tuxpan, $2.50. January 5th, return to Veracruz, $2.50. January 6th, sudden night trip to Halifax, Nova Scotia, via Buffalo and Niagara Falls, $50.50. January 18th, laundry for three months, $5, etc., etc. Extraordinary expenses. To Agent Pushit John, a Sham, and amber cigar holder and pipe, $7.00 tobacco jar of shell and silver, $4.00. To Indian, Peter Southgo, a watch, a suit, and a pair of shoes, $16.50. To my general agent of confidential reports for his daughter, a gold ring and a feather fan, $7.00. A necktie for himself and scarf pin in gold and with stone for the necktie, $8.60. To the letter carrier to bring me my correspondence, and not give it to anyone else when I should change address. Four dollars, invitation to the consul and his two agents in Washington Hotel. Twelve dollars, several invitations to cafes and saloons to the police agents. Two dollars, invitations to old employees of Jean Tessier to tear from them the declarations. A dollar fifty, barber expenses. Eleven dollars and fifty cents, tobacco and matches, July to December three packages each week, 10 cents each, $7.80, changing hotels to lead astray the agents of the imposters, $9.50, etc., etc. To obtain a colossal fortune, as yours will be, it is necessary to spend money unstintingly and to have lots of patience. Court proceedings will be useless, as trickery and lies are necessary to get the best of the scoundrels. It is necessary also to be a scoundrel. That he might well say, interpolates Lapierre, he succeeds, say sure. I rapidly glanced over the remaining letters. The general seems always to be upon the verge of compelling a compromise. I have already prepared my net, and the meshes are tightly drawn, so that the fish will not be able to escape. For an office like this, one needs money, money to go quickly from one place to another, prosecute the usurpers, not allow them an instant's rest." If they go to some city, run after them at once, tire them with my presence, and constantly harass them, and by this means compel them to hasten a compromise. The general is meeting with superhuman obstacles. In addition to his enemies, he suffers all sorts of terrible bodily afflictions. Whenever the remittances from the Lapierres do not arrive, the difficulties and diseases increase. At last, however, after an interval of two years, things took a turn for the better. A confidential representative of the conspirators, one Mr. Benedict Smith, arrived to make a bona fide offer of $150 million in settlement of the case. The general writes at great length as to exactly in what proportion the money should be divided among the heirs. The thing is so near a culmination that he is greatly exercised over his shabby appearance." I am without a son and too badly dressed to go before the banker in the very likely case of his arrival here. Send me my baggage at once with the first steamer, and mark each piece fragile. This is all. My regards to Madame Lapierre and your son. I am cordially yours, squeezing your hand, Pedro S. de Moreno." But the Lapierres and Tessiers, while not for an instant distrusting the honesty of the general, had become extremely weary of sending him money. Each heir felt that he had contributed enough toward the general's expenses and invitations. Even the one hundred and fifty millions within easy reach did not prompt immediate response. About the same time, an extraordinary messenger arrived at the LaPierre farm, purporting to come from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and instructing LaPierre to repair immediately to Paris. The messenger explained that the presence of LaPierre was desired at the Ministry, in connection with some investigation then in progress into the affairs of one Jean Tessier. Then the messenger departed as mysteriously as he had arrived. Good Monsieur Lapierre was highly excited. Here was indubitable evidence of the truth of the general's assertions. But, just as the latter had intended, perhaps, the worthy farmer jumped to the conclusion that probably the messenger from Paris had been sent by the conspirators. At the last moment, wrote LaPierre to Moreno, I received from Paris a letter commanding me to go to the ministry, and at the same time a telegram recommending that I leave at once. I shall write you from Paris, all that I learned to your interest. If this letter should not reach you sealed in red wax, with small indentations made with a sewing thimble and my initials, which I always sign, it is that our correspondence is seized and read. Events followed in rapid succession. Lapierre, the Tessiers, including the little blacksmith, became almost hysterical with excitement. A gentleman by the name Mr. Francis Delas called upon Lapierre and offered him $25 million spot cash for his wife's share in the Tessier inheritance. This person also claimed that he had a power of attorney from all the other heirs, with the exception of Petit and Rosier, and asserted that he was on the point of embarking for New York in their interest. He urged Lapierre to substitute him for Moreno, but Lapierre, now convinced that everything was as the general had claimed it to be, indignantly rejected any such proposition aimed at his old friend, and sent Mr. Francis de Las packing about his business. This is what my answer has been to him. Sir, we have already an agent with whom we can only have cause to be satisfied, so that your services are not acceptable or needed. He left me most dissatisfied in scolding. The sending of this confederate on the part of the wily general had precisely the effect hoped for. Lapierre and his friends were now convinced that the inheritance Tessier was a reality, and that powerful personages were not only exerting their influence to prevent the rightful heirs from obtaining their property, but had also in some way secured the cooperation of government officials. It was agreed on all hands that the worthy landowner, accompanied by Madame Redan, had better proceed at once to the scene of operations, and unite with the general in their common purpose. Once on the ground, Lapierre could assume direction of his own campaign. Lapierre and Madame Redan accordingly sailed for America and arrived in New York on the 4th of December, 1904, where they were met on the dock by the general, who, freshly barbered and with a rose in his buttonhole, invited them, as soon as they had recovered from the fatigue of landing, to make a personal inspection of their properties. These heirs to hundreds of millions of dollars were conducted by the Marquis de la Dessa and Count de Tinoco to the Battery, where he gallantly seated them in an electric surface car and proceeded to show them the inheritance. He pointed out successively Number 100 Broadway, the Flatiron Building, the 5th Avenue Hotel, and the Holland House, the Waldorf Astoria, the Vanderbilt Mansion at 57th Street and 5th Avenue the Hotel Savoy, and the Hotel Netherland, incidentally taking a crosstown trip to the ferry station at East 23rd Street and to Bellevue Hospital. A public omnibus conveyed them around Central Park, also their own, and in spite of the cold weather, the General insisted on showing them the Tessier Mansion and Estate at Fort George, visible from the Washington Bridge, a beautiful property in the center of a wood. Returning, he took them to the Museum of Natural History and to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which contained Tessier's collections. Having thus given them a bird's-eye view of the Promised Land, the general escorted them to his apartments and allowed them to see the Ark of the Covenant, in the shape of a somewhat dilapidated leather trunk, which contained a paper alleged to be the will of Jean Tessier made in Bellevue Hospital, one of his possessions, and unlawfully seized by the Lespinasse family. It was only, Moreno alleged, through the powerful influence of the Jesuits, that he had been able to secure and keep a copy of this will. Although the Marquis de la Dessa must have known that his days were numbered, he was as gay and as entertaining as ever. Then, suddenly the scales began to fall from Madame Redon's eyes. The promised meeting with Marie-Louise Lespinasse and her mysterious representative, Mr. Benedict Smith, was constantly adjourned. The police agents, whom it had been so necessary to entertain and invite to saloons and cafes, were strangely absent, and so were the counselors, Jesuit fathers, bankers, and others who had crowded the general's antechambers. A slatternly Hibernian woman appeared, claiming the hero as her husband, his landlady caused him to be evicted from her premises, and his trunk, containing the famous dossier, was thrown into the street where it lay until the general himself, placing it upon his princely shoulders, bore it to a fifteen-cent lodging-house. "'And now, monsieur,' said little Madame Murdon, raising her hands and clasping them entreatingly before her, "'we have come to seek vengeance upon this miserable, this vilain monsieur. He has taken our money and made fools of us. Surely you will give us justice.' "'Yes,' echoed Lapierre stubbornly, "'and the money was my own money, which I had made from the products of my farming.' A month later, Don Pedro Suarez de Moreno, Count de Tinoco, Marquis de la Dessa, and Brigadier General of the Royal Armies of the Philippines and of Spain, sat at the bar of the general sessions, twirling his mustache and uttering loud snorts of contempt while La Pierre and Madame Redon told their story to an almost incredulous yet sympathetic jury. But the real trial began only when he arose to take the witness chair on his own behalf. Apparently racked with pain and laboring under the most frightful physical infirmities, the general, through an interpreter, introduced himself to the jury by all his titles, asserting that he had inherited his patents of nobility from the Prince of Arras, from whom he was descended, and that he was in very truth General-in-Chief of the Armies of the King of Spain, General Secretary of War, and Custodian of the Royal Seal." He admitted telling the Lapierres that they were the heirs of $500 million, but he had himself honestly believed it. When he and the rest of them had discovered their common error, they had turned upon him and were now hounding him out of revenge. The courtly general was as distingué as ever, as he addressed the hard-eyed jury of tradesmen before him. As what can I, he must have regarded them. What a position for the Count de Tinoco." Then two officers entered the courtroom, bearing the famous trunk of the general between them. The top tray proved to contain thousands of railroad tickets. The prosecutor requested the defendant to explain their possession. Ah! exclaimed Moreno, twirling his mustaches. When I was general under my king, Don Carlos, in the Seven Years' War of 75, and also in Catalonia in 80, I issued these tickets to wounded soldiers for their return home at the boundaries, the Spanish tickets were exchanged for French tickets. He looked as if he really meant it. Then the prosecutor called his attention to the fact that most of them bore the date of 1891 and were printed in French, not in Spanish. The prisoner seemed greatly surprised and muttered under his breath vaguely about plots and conspiracies. Then he suddenly remembered that the tickets were a collection made by his little son. Beneath the tickets were found sheaves of blank orders of nobility and blank commissions in the army of Spain, bearing what appeared to be the royal seal. These the general asserted that he had the right to confer by proxy for his king Don Carlos. Hundreds of other documents bearing various arms and crests lay interspersed among them. The prisoner drew himself up magnificently. "'I was the general secretary of war of my king,' said he." when I had to give orders to the generals under me, of whom I was the chief, I had the right to put thereon the royal imprint of Don Carlos. I was given all the papers incident to the granting of orders and grades in the army, and I had the seal of the king, the seal of the royal king. But unfortunately for the prisoner, the seals upon the papers turned out to be the legitimate arms of Spain, and not those of Don Carlos.' and as a finale he ingenuously identified the seal of the mayor of Madrid as that of his royal king. Next came a selection of letters of nobility, sealed and signed in the name of Pope Leo Thirteenth. These, he asserted, must have been placed there by his enemies. I am a soldier and a general of honor, and I never did any such trafficking, he cried grandly, when charged with selling bogus patents of nobility. He explained some of his correspondence with the Lapierres and his famous bill for $12,000 by saying that when he found out that the inheritance Tessier did not exist, he had conceived the idea of making a novel of the story, a fantastic history, to be published in four languages simultaneously, and asserted solemnly that he had intended printing the whole 16 feet of bill as part of the romance. Then, to the undisguised horror of the unfortunate general— At a summons from the prosecutor, an elderly Frenchwoman arose in the audience and came to the bar. The general turned first pale, then purple. He hotly denied that he had married this lady in France twenty-three years ago. Name of a name, he had known her, yes, certainly. But she was no wife of his, she had been only his servant. The other lady, the Hibernian, was his only wife. But the chickens had begun to come home to roost the pointed mustaches drooped with an unmistakable look of dejection, and as he marched back to his seat his shoulders no longer had the air of military distinction that one would expect in a general of a royal king. His head sank on his chest as his deserted wife took the stand against him, the wife whom, he had imagined, he would never see again. Anyone could have seen that Elizabeth de Moreno was a good woman. Her father's name, she said, was Nichaud, and she had first met the prisoner twenty-three years ago in the village of Dock in the Department of the Tarn, where, in 1883, he had been convicted and sentenced for stealing bed linen from the Hotel Kassam. She had remained faithful to him in spite of his disgrace and had visited him daily in prison, bringing him milk and tobacco. On his liberation, she had married him, and they had gone to live in Bordeaux. For years, they had lived in comfort, and she had borne him eight children. He had never been to any war and was neither a general nor, so far as she had known, a friend of Don Carlos. She had supposed that her husband held some position in connection with the inspection of railroads. But in 1902, it had come out that he was in the business of selling counterfeit railroad tickets and had employed a printer named Paul Casignol to print great numbers of third class tickets for the purpose of selling them to ignorant soldiers and artisans. Moreno had fled to America. She had then discovered that he had also made a practice of checking worthless baggage, stealing it himself, and then presenting claims, therefore, against the railroad companies. She had been left without a sou, and the rascal had taken everything she had away with him, including even the locket containing the hair of her children. By the time she had finished her story, Moreno's courage had deserted him. The jury, without hesitation, returned a verdict of guilty, and the judge, then and there, sentenced the prisoner to a term at hard labor in state's prison. "'Mais oui,' grunts Lapierre as the crow, with a final call of contempt, alights in a poplar further down the road. "'I don't blame the bird for laughing at me. "'But, after all, there is nothing to be ashamed of. "'Is one to be blamed that one is fooled? "'Eh, we are all made fools of once and again, "'and, as I said before, he would have deceived the devil himself.' but perhaps things are better as they are. Money is the root of all evil. If I had an automobile, I should probably be thrown out and have my neck broken. But if Monsieur intends to take the next train for Bordeaux, it is as well that he should be starting. End of chapter 2